Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield Reads. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft. I'm here with Sarah Masaryk, and we have Tanya Arnold with us today, and our partner in Gary Schmidt crime, Sherry Early. <laughs> She's our partner in other crimes too, but we well, probably today. don't want to put oh. those out on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> Sherry, welcome back. It's so great having you back. Thank you. And Tanya, we uh, never tire of having you here. Oh, good. <laughs> so girls, we are here today to discuss another Gary D. Schmidt book. And this one's interesting because this is one that Diane and I don't feel is quite as strong as okay for now, but the very little bit of, of chatting that we've done ahead of time, I think, Tanya, you disagree with us on that. So it'll be very interesting. Yeah, that's good. That's good. <laughs> that make an interesting conversation. So friends, if you are new to our podcast, or if you haven't listened in a while, or you're listening out of order, we just wanted to make sure that you know that we began a Gary D. Schmidt journey a couple of months ago. And while Diane and I think that you should read the books in a particular order, uh, Sherry and Sarah disagree with that. And I think Gary D. Schmidt agrees with Sherry and Sarah. <laughs> so to clarify, <laughs> there's no actual right or wrong way to do this. All of Gary's books are, in fact, standalones. None of them are in a particular series. But we feel, Diane and I feel, that there's a particular arc or organization to it. So you can do whatever you want. We're not telling you one way or another that you must do something. But we wanted to give you a heads up that if you are like us and you like to read things in a particular arc, this is not the first episode. <laughs> so if you are new to us and you, you want to read the progression the way that we recommend, that Diane and I recommend, but not everybody in this book club recommends, you're going to want to go back and start with the Wednesday Wars. And then after the Wednesday Wars, do okay for now. And then we're reading this one, even though it goes way back in time, about 70 years before those two books, because what we consider to be the third book of sort of the 1960s trilogy is just like that. And there are characters in this book who feature in Just Like That. So we felt like this one was an important one to understand before reading Just Like That. But let me reiterate, you don't have to agree with this. This is your reading. You can do it however you want. And Sherry is doing it a different way and loving these books too. So you do what works for you. Just read. That's the goal. Just read. But so that you understand for this conversation, we will have spoilers for Wednesday Wars and OK for Now, because we have presumed that either you have either already read those books or don't care about spoilers. Also, a bit of housekeeping, if you're here for a book club with us, we have presumed that you have already read this book or do not care about having it spoiled. So please know that We'll talk a little bit about setup, and then when the spoilers begin, we'll give you fair warning. But this discussion is going to be ripe with meaningful conversation, we hope, about a really <laughs> powerful book, a fantastic book, one that Tanya thinks is as good as okay for now. All right, all that housekeeping out of the way. Thank you. <laughs> and just a reminder that... We really do want to chat with you about this. If you'd like to chat with us, we'd love to chat with you. So feel free to find us on social media or better yet, find us at the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network. It's totally free and we have a dedicated space for book club discussion and you can come and chat with us about this book anytime. We would love it if a year from now somebody would discover this podcast episode and want to talk about Lizzie Bright and would bring that conversation back to life for us. All right. Sherry, what do you think? How do you think this book compares to OK For Now? Well, I read it first several years ago. Didn't remember just a whole lot about it. And at the time I read it, I thought it was OK. I wasn't that impressed. Mm -hmm. I reread it this morning, actually. Wow. <laughs> and 
it's better than I remember it. Mm. But I still, I still stick with okay for now. <laughs> I, I, I really thought that that would he hit the he hit the ball out of the park, as they say, <laughs> in that one. You know, I, I feel the same way, and I think Diane does. And we'll let Diane talk, and we'll definitely Tanya. We want to hear why you like it so much. But I was not talking about this with my kids as we were driving today, and I was saying, why is it? I wonder that this book, why Tanya would think that this book is equally powerful. And I wonder if it has something to do with just sensitivity to a particular subject or interest in a particular subject. Like if, if you're really interested in a particular time period or the way certain things happen, the way they happen in Lizzie Bright, maybe that's just more interesting and therefore adds power to that. Tanya, why do you think that this one is as good as Okay for Now? I do think it's as good as Okay for Now. I think it's different. So you have a different narration style. So you go from first person to third person. Mm-hmm. And you you have that narrator kind of showing you both Lizzie and Turner. Mm-hmm. And you're seeing it differently than you're seeing Okay for Now or Wednesday Wars. So I think the first thing is that if you start with Wednesday Wars and Okay for Now, and you start to love those, it is a little bit of a transition when your favorite author does something different. It can be right? jarring. Yeah. It can be a little jarring. Yeah. I also listened to mm-hmm. it and the narrators for the other two books were phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this narrator at first, I thought, mm, do I like mm. him? And then I just fell in love with the narrator. Mm. But I think there's a subtlety to it that has a level of genius that's equivalent in a few things. One, you still have, he has muses in every yes. book. So you still have muses showing up in a really interesting way that's different than he's done it mm-hmm. before. Or I guess this book would have come right. before those yeah. books. So yeah. it's different. Mm-hmm. And then there's some personification throughout the story that just blew my mind. And I want to share some quotes of that. But this personification of the sea breeze mm-hmm. was powerful. Mm-hmm. The sea breeze was its own character throughout the whole story. You could, you could do a whole thing with just the sea breeze, and uh, the, like when the sea breeze wears an overcoat, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of interesting things. And the sun also mm-hmm. has a little bit of personification and and some nature scenes, which I think are subtle. I think they're very secondary to the story. But if you, I don't know if I could just feel it. I could feel the sea breeze as I was listening to. But this the story. doesn't. It doesn't get in the and, way. It, it's not distracting. Right. It's not yeah. in the way. Right. No, it's subtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you could almost miss it, except that you can feel it. And I think I could just feel it and sense this underlying current. And the same thing with the storyline with the whale. Mm -hmm. And um, then also, again, you have really powerful adults that are exemplary and that you love. And then you have ones and you're conflicted over how these adults are making choices in their lives and how the... um, main character is thinking about each of those so again it's you have a 12 13 year old so I I think as parents when you're zero to 12 I feel like we want to give our kids those stories that are family rich and family oriented that show really good relationships right. and that just create really lovely stabilization like Hilda von Stockholm right we want strong yeah fathers. we we we're like happy little yes, family exactly um Right. You just want all of that that just nurtures your family and brings them close. Mm -hmm. But by the time a child's 12 or 13, they're separating themselves and their thoughts from who their parents are and their parents' thoughts are. And they're growing into adulthood. And again, we see Turner going through that process the same way we saw Holling and Doug. And in just as powerful of a way, in my opinion. And then you see the other thing that I just loved is there is forgiveness in this story and it's never called out and it's never even clearly defined, but he has conflict with people, multiple people that resolves so beautifully. I thought you could miss it. Mm. You could miss the whole forgiveness aspect if you were just only focusing on the racist mm-hmm. aspect or um, the struggles with Christian beliefs mm-hmm. and how those are interpreted. There's some things you could miss. So I just, there's a lot of underlying things that are playing like there's underlying currents I guess Mm. and those bring such depth that I thought I could listen to this again I need to go listen to it again I just finished it and thought I'm gonna start over because now I know and it's all like I I know where it's going 
And now I want to go back and see really how he built that. As we've talked about, when I started reading Wednesday Wars, I was very ho-hum. And then I got into it mm-hmm. and, and realized the genius. And then you do, okay, for now, and think, oh my gosh, no, this is it. This this is like the masterpiece. Yeah. And yeah. then this was another one that Sarah was saying, oh, this is really good. This is you know, much better than I thought it was going to be. We have to do this one too. And when I started reading that, I was going, oh, here we go again. 14-year-old boy, doesn't get along with his parents. He just moved to a new place. He's got all these conflicts with fitting in, and it's not going to go well. And I see that this is not going to end well. I really don't want to know. And so I think Mm. through the whole thing, I just kept feeling like I don't want to know because it's going to be bad. Yeah, There's a haunting. I think you you feel really haunted the whole book you just you know this one isn't going to go well mm-hmm. and if you know anything about the history you know how badly it's going to go mm-hmm. but I found something I didn't even know this that I didn't know that I thought this until Tanya was talking in Wednesday Wars we're talking about a 12 to 13 year old boy it's first person feels like you're in the head of a boy same thing with okay for now you're in Doug's Wyatt's head. You're understanding it from the perspective of a, of a middle school boy. This one, the name is Lizzie Bright. The, 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 the character is a girl. Yes, it is about a boy. It is about Turner Buckminster III. Yes, it is. But the fact that her name precedes his, it's not just a clever title. I think that there's a, an emphasis and there's also a nod to style. This one to me feels more elegant. It feels more feminine. It feels more well-dressed. It feels more appropriate of its time when writing was a little bit more elegant. And kids actually spoke in a more elegant way because that was the language of the, that was the vernacular language of the time. So I think Gary D. Schmidt does vernacular really, really well. What's fascinating, and we can unpack a little more next month, is Just Like That is about Marilee, a girl. It's also about Matt, a boy. But to me, it's more about Marilee until it's more about Matt. But because it's about Marilee and there's a very, very strong set of female characters, that one also to me feels... Um, vernacular is similar to Wednesday Wars and okay for now, but it feels again, that feminine, that femininity and that elegance, uh, a gentleness of spirit that you just don't get with Doug and Hauling and you don't get with Carter Jones or you don't get with Hercules Beale. Uh, We always say Gary D. Schmidt writes about 12 to 13 year old boys and he does, but I think he does a really good job of writing about middle school girls too. I will have to say that I thought he did a really good job with Marilee because I think sometimes it's so obviously bad when a man tries yeah. to write about a girl, especially when he tries to write about a teenage girl. Right. And I don't like women <laughs> trying it with boys either most of the time. You right. know, I'm going, thinking, right. no, didn't you ever even have a boy? <laughs> if not, don't why are you writing this? <laughs> I get very, I feel very strongly that these books are evidence of the fact that he has six children. He clearly Mm. has children of both genders, Mm -hmm. and he understands the differences between children, and he can write really worthy heroes and heroines who are nothing like the others. You know, Jill Morgan at Purple House Press always talks about each of her books are her children, and I feel like each of these primary protagonists are more of Gary D. Schmidt's children. And so these children, our siblings, you know, Holling and Doug and Marilee and Lizzie, they're all siblings to each other in a, in a way. And they're all really different. They're all really worthy. I think the other thing that I feel like is incredibly magnificent is that, you know, Diane was saying, you start reading one and you think, okay, here we yeah. go again. 12 or 13 year old boy, mm-hmm. you know, yada, yada, yada. Except that. Isn't it true in life that we have similar challenges in life? So 12 to 13-year-old boys probably all face similar challenges. As humans, we just do, except that our experiences are never the same. They're unique to us. Each one of us has a unique situation and a unique experience, even though we may experience similar challenges and go through similar growing stages of life. 
And so each time he's showing us, yeah, here's these similar threads that are going to cross, that can be, they're going to cross across all these different lives and that we can all recognize and resonate mm -hmm. with. And yet this story is uniquely individualized to this particular character. Right. So you can see pieces of maybe yourself or your own experience or someone you know. Right. And yet Turner's story is not Holling's mm -hmm. story and it's not Doug's mm -hmm. story. And so he's not he's not like other authors there where they just write the same story over and over and over again. No. Well, and it's interesting because right? there's always some of the, these interested adults who show up, right, in meaningful ways. Yeah. And they're mm -hmm. not all the same either. So they're all ideally suited to the particular protagonist. And I've always really appreciated that about Gary D. Schmidt. What Doug needs is totally different than what Lizzie needs. And so the mm -hmm. adult mentor is going to be totally different. And I think especially in this book, one of the adults in particular, she was no good to anybody until these two kids. And how these kids help to redeem her in a way, too. I think that's really pretty awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and how easy it is to make assumptions about mm -hmm. people. And then again, he's challenging the assumption you've made. People aren't, they're not stale, mm -hmm. two-dimensional characters. And he shows you there's more to people than you, than you initially know or might presume. I love mm -hmm. that. And especially especially with the parental yeah. figures sometimes especially this yeah. one this i cried with what he did with the dad oh. on this one. i cried and mrs. i was Cobb, gonna say i honestly. cried with mrs cobb yeah. <laughs> yeah and and lizzie's grandfather oh. i he was a powerful small but powerful character yeah. i thought wow so very much happening so oh and his mom his mom was very awesome the few times that she spoke I was like oh snap <laughs> and like I said in our episode yeah. our episode of our reading life I was also I just read Anne Rinaldi's A Break with Charity which is the Salem Witch Trials and recently I have read Witch of Blackbird Pond and Downright Dency so I've been reading books about these very religious New England type villages that have had this strong masculine leadership structure with women who need to be silent and know their place and children who need to be obedient and, and do what they're supposed to do when they're supposed to do it. And to see these, these very contrasting stories, I thought she knew exactly what her value was. She knew exactly when to speak and how to speak so as to still be respectful and honoring of her husband, but also appropriate for her son and for them as a family. Mm -hmm. Well, there was a running theme through the book about um, when to speak and when not to speak and keeping silence and yes. and speaking out and all that kind of stuff, but not just with her, but with, with the other characters in the book. Yeah. I think what bothered me or what made the book not as enjoyable to me was that I had the same idea as Diane when I started out, only mine was... Oh, no, here we go again. Church full of religious hypocrites yeah. who are out actually out to for their own gain ends. Mm -hmm. And I'm so tired of that trope. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, I, I just and honestly, it gets a little better because his father is sort of redeemed. But well, is but but still the church was full of. Hypocrites <laughs> was full of hypocrites, yeah, and and power hungry and evil, even hypocrites. So, and I thought, I'm like, eh, do I really want to read about that again? <laughs> and do I really want that to be what my kids find every time they find a religious character? I mean, right, find a right a religious character or a, a preacher for sure, right, in a book, right, fiction. He's going to be the villain, you know. Schmidt does tend to bring that back around to you, to where you see these characters were really Christ-like. They mm -hmm. might not have been churchy, but they were mm -hmm. Christians. And and I think he's pretty good about having at least one person like that in the story. And he redeems the dad in this one, but also the deacon. 
Okay, I'm going to stop us right here for a second. Mamas, this is the point. No return now for spoilers. We've we've already teased you a bit. You've probably heard some things a little bit. But that's okay. Um, but now, now it's all going to be transparent. So if you're not interested in hearing any spoilers, this is a great time to grab your phone or your device and turn it off. And yes, I always make this a long drawn out thing because you might be washing dishes and your hands are wet and you need to just get a towel and dry them before you hear things you don't want to hear. So friends, please go ahead, bookmark this, come back to it when you're ready for it. Everybody else, let's talk about the church people, shall we? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to just, I'm just going to jump for one second and say, what is so interesting to me is that those church people in this book and the role they play in Just Like That, and I know we can't say that yet because that's a spoiler for the next book, but I thought, Sherry, what you're saying, it's so true. Like we're always villainizing the church itself. And we, that, that, I don't like it when we're always, when it feels like we're always villainizing church, because as a member of a church that I love, it's nice to know that churches do a lot of good work too. And that there, that there are a lot of people who attend church who are trying very hard to be Christ-like. And I think Schmidt nods to that at the end of this book. And I love that he brings that back in the next book. I also think that he wasn't disrespectful in the way he was handling things. And I think what he was trying to do was make the reader a little bit uncomfortable, especially if you are a Christian. Mm -hmm. So if you are a Christian, there's a lot of opportunity where Turner is talking to God. He's thinking about how he thinks God should be helping him. There's a lot of inner dialogue around that and you're seeing you are seeing people show up in christ-like ways and in not christ-like ways and i think he's also showing you that peer pressure is not just something that affects the youth Mm, true (laughs) peer pressure when you're in a group right because the dad i think the dad was struggling all along but he's he's also in his times it's 1912 the, the the dynamics of everything that's happening in the town, the economics, the way the town peoples were thinking, he's brand new in the town. I was just trying to imagine from the dad's perspectives, all the pressures that were on him and all the dynamics he's thinking of, because he was never jumping. Mm-hmm. He was always like, well, let's just see. Well, no, he wasn't, he wasn't standing up and saying, no, I disagree. But I could tell he was not, he, he was struggling. I think he was struggling. And he serves at the pleasure of the people. So if he irritates the people, then he's out of a job. But he also, he's trying to figure out what everybody's up to, and he doesn't know. I, to me, he was expecting people to be at their best and do what they said. And, and how would he know they didn't? Because he was so new. I mean, this happens really fast. Yeah. The whole thing, there's, there's not a lot of time it's, to get settled in before it's at a crisis. Yeah. Well, and you find out that Turner has never met a black person. Lizzie's the first one. And he lived in a big city. Has his dad? That's what's... I don't He lived in Boston. How did he never meet a person of color in Boston? It's 1912. (laughs) Yeah. I believe it's true. I don't know. So I was just thinking about Turner, if it was the first that he knew. I mean, how many did his parents know or hang out with? Like, Mm -hmm. how... And, and that maybe that's one of the things that was really brilliant, too, about the story is that as people, we make assumptions about other people. It's so easy to say, well, that person is of this race or that person is of this religion or that person is of this political affiliation. And then we think we know them, mm. but we don't mm-hmm. know them. You don't know people that you meet online no, even yeah. just because you've seen comments from them. It's not until you have a face-to-face interaction and you actually talk with people that you know someone. And when you really know someone, it can really change how you feel about them. What's that famous quote where someone said, I don't like that man. I must get to know him better. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well Who's done, Sherry? You're a mind reader. Somebody told me that it was Lincoln, but I'm not even sure. I think that might be apocryphal. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So someone somewhere <laughs> at some time made a comment and a, there's a quote out there that basically says, oh, I don't know that person very well. I It must mean that I need to get to know them. Or I don't like that person very well. It must mean that I need to get to know yeah. them. And I just think, isn't that so true? And if they had taken time to get to know Lizzie's grandfather or the actual people out there because all they were saying is rumor oh those people are crazy and of course they're doing it 
again, rationalizing. And how many times do humans do that? They rationalize. Well, and so that they can still stand in integrity with themselves. And it's it's so, so patently untrue, right? So that they find, they find the thread. Anybody who would want to live somewhere where they are not wanted, ergo, they are insane. Therefore, they need to go to a hospital. But isn't it interesting when we find out that nobody survived very long in that hospital? So all the people that were quote unquote insane and had to be hospitalized, according to true historical record, they didn't survive more than a couple of months in that hospital. They all died. I kept wondering what the deal was with the hospital, because this is based on a true story, right? Yes. And that is what happened. Right. That the people were, or some of them were taken to this mental institution and then they mostly died. Right. What did they die of? Were they were they like? Did they freeze to death, or did they not feed them? Or Diane, I, I don't know. Well, I think the implication is that they didn't want to live. They couldn't live in a cage. Yeah. But um, in the interview that we talked about on the last one that Gary D. Schmidt did, actually, it was in his talk that he was giving. He says. Um, that even though a lot of them did die like that, that they've found out later that some of them lived for 20 or 30 years in there. Oh, yeah. They were just told the they rest of their lives, yeah. is what I read. Mm-hmm. Wow. Wow. So I'm not sure which is worse. Yeah. yeah. So back to the Christian mm-hmm. question and the church thing, though. I think Gary is really inviting the reader into I think a there's a lot of beauty into what Christianity is and what it means to be Christ-like mm-hmm. and I think we see it portrayed in the story and I think he's inviting the reader into the question of what kind of a Christian do you want to be mm-hmm. and it's uncomfortable and sometimes sacrifice when we when we when we think about Christianity Christ said take up your cross and follow me be willing to give up everything and right. follow me well, that means giving up sometimes your comfort. Mm-hmm. That means living with people you don't want to live with. That means taking care of the poor. Yeah. But sometimes we want to rationalize, well, that doesn't really work because it'll bring down the property right. values. Well, that doesn't really work because I don't actually make that much money. So I don't have a 10% tithe to give mm-hmm. or, right? Like we struggle because we're human. But I think he's asking, I mean, what you see from Turner and his mom are just some really beautiful ways to be and then you see you see some redemption and you see some forgiveness and you see some people the whole town once mr stone cropper stone crop mm-hmm. well the, the the ringleader once the ringleader leaves and he's taken everybody's money and people can actually just they're out from underneath that and they're thinking for themselves a lot of people are like well i always knew he was bad and i never wanted to do those things anyway and th- this is why Oh. This is why scripture says that money is the root of all evil. It's not love that money, money is evil. The love of money, Peyton. The love <laughs> of money is the root of all evil. It is not money that is evil. It's the love of money. It's right. the bewitching, compelling um, tyran- tyranny that money can can rain on ourselves, on our sanity, on the, our decisions. And so one of the things we've talked about in our Gary D. Schmidt conversations is that one of my favorite things about reading his other books is that you see these echoes or you see how certain characters have turned out. And what we know from just like that is that Turner does become a pastor. And remember how he didn't want to be a pastor? The whole This whole book, you know, everybody's saying he's going to go off to seminary and be a reverend just like his father, but he doesn't really want to be like his daddy. He doesn't understand his daddy. He doesn't really like his daddy. And then, of course, this whole thing happens with his dad. I find it very comforting to know that Turner does become a pastor because his experience with Lizzie and the people on the island, I think it probably shaped him. I think that he was probably a better kind of pastor than other pastors that would have tolerated the kind of racism that was rampant in that community. So that's where I say I I like Sherry that I feel like in a way Schmidt does redeem some of that across the books. Well, I think that helps me because it wasn't just the, uh, 
the aspect of the church and the hypocrites in the church and stuff that made me uncomfortable. And maybe it was good that I was made uncomfortable because that's what you are when you're an adolescent and you're going through questioning and figuring out that your parents are fallible (laughs) and figuring out what you believe about things and all that kind of stuff. But it was the, the, the whole Darwinism thing Mm. and the whole like, uh, you know, um, I'm going to be open to, to change and open to evolution of my belief, you know, of my beliefs. Yes. I thought that was sketchy too. That was, that was, it made me uncomfortable. I'll put it that way. I, I, I was suspicious of all of them. I was even suspicious of Schmidt for a minute because of that. But I think that what we see in just like that is that it didn't follow its natural evolution. <laughs> Pun intended, I guess. And, and in most of his books, you get some kind of a conflict like that where there are people who are claiming to be so good and they're not. And it feels mm-hmm. like, oh, here he goes again attacking church. But he's not. He's attacking hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And there's yeah. always something about that. There's, And you have a lot of the kids do pray in certain ways and they all have their little thing that they say, but they, it's usually like, no, sure. Yeah. God's not going to help make that happen right for me or something like that. So they've gotten an idea in their head about how prayers are answered because people tell them wrong things mm-hmm. and they have to work mm-hmm. that out themselves. And then they're seeing certain people saying, if you go to church and do all the right things, that makes you good. And the kids are yeah. seeing they're not good. And I, I really right. just think it's always, there's always a lesson on hypocrisy and mm-hmm. how, um, how well kids see that. Oh yeah. Kids really advise that see. Mm-hmm. But I, I think going back to what Sherry's saying about the Darwinian aspect that 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 was the thing that Turner and his dad had in common. That they were reading Darwin together and exploring the av- evolutionary thought. I think that, you know, like like you, Sherry, it really bothered me until I started to see it as this is Schmidt exploring how does a young man of that time begin to assert his own thinking what are some of the things he's wrestling with? So if you follow Darwin through to its natural conclusion, he, he would have sided with re- exterminating the people on the island. You know, the strong will survive, that this is a weaker race, it's a conquered race. And I think that his reading of Darwin, even though he's fascinated by it, I think that's all called into check when, it, when you actually see what happens when you see all this post-enlightenment stuff that happens and all the greed that comes out of it. So I I felt like it was a good way of showing that he's working these things out and he's got to read these things and be fascinated by them and unpack them and then live with the consequences of what they really mean. It's also what you said. It's of the time. This was still a pretty big deal, sort of a new thing. And it was just starting to come into common culture because it's Mm -hmm. not unlike another little bit more than a decade in the Scopes monkey trial happens. Mm Mm-hmm. So I think it part of it is just like his dad was teaching him that as like, here's your, here's your religion lesson. Here's your Latin lesson. Here's your science. Cause this is new science. And as a minister, he needs to both be old and new in, not of the world. So he needs to be aware of what's going on and he needs to wrestle those things out. And I love that the education was classically informed so it wasn't just here, read Darwin and drink it all down and just take it as uh, truth. It's rather take that Darwin and put it up against your Latin and your Greek and your scripture and work it out. He also Think totally intended to work through it with him. Yes. He was doing it all with him. Yes. But there was a real contrast between, um, he told Turner that, uh, Sometimes books are a fire, yeah, and they can and they can burn, and uh, you know, um, which and he was referring to Darwin, right? And then there was other book that he was reading for school, 
I, I forget the guy's name, but somebody's a really heavy theology book. Yeah. Mm. Heavy theology, blah, blah, blah. And it, and Turner says, you know, it's the worst book ever. Basically yeah. uh, he has, uh, he says it better, but um, so, and it's very dry and it, there's nothing there. There's no, there's no flame. Yeah. There's no idea Yeah, in that defense of it's some kind of defense of Christianity, basically. Right. And so the contrast between those that bothered me too, that, that there was no, there was no excitement in learning about real Christianity. Right. Or, you know, there was excitement in the Aeneid and there was excitement yes. in, in Darwin. <laughs> yes. But, but not in, not in the life of Christ. Actual. Yeah, exactly. No. I guess I didn't feel about, about it like that because I'm thinking here's a dry, it's not about, the book wasn't about Christianity. It was about doctrine. Mm. And so he's yeah. learning specific yeah. doctrine rather than what it means to be Christ-like. And so I think that, that was a contrast to me was, here, here's the dry, let's take apart theology and, and who, what 14 year old wants to hear that anyway, while everybody around you is acting badly and is, is not mm -hmm. kind, you know, which way are you going to go at the time? But then I, I still feel like it comes out right in the end. Like, here's what real Christians look like. Sherry, I had the same impressions that you did, I think, or very similar ones. I, I felt a, a great suspicion of his father for handing Darwin to him and for vilifying the doctrine. I, I think that he, his father genuinely loves that doctrine. He has made it his life's work to know it, to love it, to understand it. And as you said, Diane, he had every intention of working through all of these texts with his son. And to be classically educated, to give his son the benefit of understanding many different aspects of God's law and God's creation and his participation in our lives, whether it's through the classics like Greek, or it is through the truths that he's revealed to us through the teachings and tenets of our faith, or it is through this understanding of science that's alive and vibrant and not yet well understood because the scientific discovery is it's perennial. It's not ever going to stop. There's always going to be something cutting edge. Darwin for them, AI for us today. There's always something. So I had that same resistance. Like, why are we putting Darwin on a pedestal and why are we undercutting religion? And I, I, I think it's that he died before he had the opportunity to bring this whole symphony together for his son. So I did not feel, I, I felt like it, it resolved well. And I trust Schmidt enough from his other books to be comfortable with where he left us. But I appreciate the resistance you had too, because I definitely felt some of that. I was thinking, how, how can he be a hero if he's going to be a lover of Darwin? Like these things don't compute for me. I think the other thing was that here's here's the dad trying to give him this classical education with a good foundation in everything so you start with the foundation like the aeneid mm -hmm. right and turner just won't behave properly he's yeah. not acting like a typical minister's son he keeps getting his shirt dirty he keeps doing things that are embarrassing he can't play baseball as well as everybody else and every time he turns around he's being unminister sonly and so mm -hmm. dad is still trying to sort through Corral him yeah and maybe his dad wasn't a minister's son so he doesn't understand the pressures of that but we think he is because turner's name is turner buckminster the third yes so there's an there's a sense of legacy so i assumed that he that if they just assumed he was going to be a minister it's because his father was a minister because his father's father was a minister so i i made the assumption that grandpa was a minister too and which is why i think there was a line in there where Somebody says they're going to, maybe it was Stone, Mr. Yes. Stone Cropper. He says, we're going to make you this deal. We're going to sell the house. We'll give you a portion so that you can go to ministerial school like your father did and like his father right. before him. Yeah, That could have been an assumption on his part too, or it could have been they knew that this was a line of pastors. Yeah. I do want to say I didn't have the same discomfort that you guys had. Um Partly because the book that he was having his son read, I felt like, I don't know, maybe I just remember what it was like to be 12 and 13 years old. When someone's preaching at you, 
and they're trying to shove stuff down your throat. Mm-hmm. And I just felt like that's what the dad was trying to do by reading not the Bible, mm-hmm. not like the true heart, but someone's opinion not the li- on what the is lives doctrine. of martyrs. Like that would be, I mean, he's loving yeah, Aeneid. So- Why wouldn't you just give him the lives and the stories of missionaries and martyrs? That would just be the same kind of, you know, fuel or fire. And then I think there's an education and a knowledge that Schmidt has that, that we lack because we have gaps. And, and I was telling someone the other day, everyone has mm-hmm. gaps. Schmidt has mm-hmm. gaps. Everyone has gaps in their knowledge or, or things they've learned because you can only learn so much on this right. planet. But sermons on some of the principles and doctrines, uh, what's it called? Hold on. On some of the first principles and doctrines of true religion was an actual right. book by Nathaniel Emmons. So I, I wonder what was the research that Schmidt put into that? What was that book for? How did people <laughs> take to it? Who likes it now? Is it right? Is it proper doctrine? Like I have a lot of questions about that book. What, I, don't, I have no yeah. context. <laughs> no, that's okay. Thanks. And then, <laughs> and then I also just. But he also. I just want to. Say he also, teaches at a Bible yeah. college, so I mean that we have to remember yeah. too that Schmidt. Well, yeah, Schmidt's based in a Bible college, so that might be a text that's still being used. Who knows? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I have questions. I have more questions than answers right he just i i continue to think what is there here for me to learn and the same thing with darwin so quite honestly i haven't read darwin's works and i know the big premise of who he is but i don't have any strong opinions on him i don't believe a lot of the my understanding of his ideas of evolution but i have read some people who have written that they feel that darwin did have a belief in god and that a lot of what he was saying was misconstrued and misinterpreted to further some ideology that he never fully said. Now, I can't speak to that because I've only read opinions on what they believe that Darwin right. wrote. But I, when, when Schmidt brought him up, I thought, I got more reading to do. <laughs> That's what I thought. Well, yeah. What, what, what the people in the town are the ones that, the, um, saw the book on the reverend's desk or whatever and said why are you reading that monkey book or something like that um what they saw in darwin and what turner got out of it were not not the same thing at all right i mean right what he got out of it was a big a great respect for nature Mm -hmm. and for finding spirituality i guess or god in nature and in the whale, mm-hmm. that's all connected with the Darwinism or with the reading Darwin for him. Right. So, right. you know, there may be other things in there. I haven't read Darwin either. So that's why there I think there's a lot more nuance more and complexity there, there that he's inviting us into mm-hmm. that we don't know if we haven't actually read The Origin of Species. I kind of felt like if I hadn't actually done what Turner's done or when he was writing or reading the one about the HMS Beagle, basically his journal of yeah. the HMS Beagle. And my, I don't know if you guys know this, but he, Darwin has his book. And then Millicent Selsom did an adaptation of Darwin's book for what? young readers. So basically, oh, yes. God, she's yes, so guys. amazing. And she's not in print. And somebody needs to reprint I know. it. So what oh, she did is not, oh. it's not an adaptation. It's an abridgment. So she just kind of took it and took out like the really wordy parts and just kind of got distilled to the meat. It. So that a young reader, she just distilled it. Yeah. And I have not read it, but my mom read it. And she just said to me, Tanya, this is incredible. This is an incredible book. You need to prioritize reading it. Um, I'm going to see if I can tell you what Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm on eBay right now because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, She's going to buy it right this minute before anybody else can. <laughs> <laughs> Probably rare, which is terrible. Because, you know, what always um, happens, it goes away. <laughs> okay, so she has two that she did, that she was an edit. She was she abridged it. The Voyage of the Beagle, abridged by Millicent Selsom. That's just what it's called. It's on BiblioGuides. And then she also did one called Stars, Mosquitoes, and Crocodiles, The American Travels of Alexander von Humboldt, selected and edited by Millicent Selsom. So in The Voyage of the Beagle, it says... Miss Selsom has abridged Darwin's long text and written a perceptive and illuminating introduction to each of the 21 chapters. And then it's illustrated as well. Anyway, my mom just said it was absolutely incredible. And I kind of thought, if you're not ready to read Darwin's full book, this is the route to go. Okay. Yeah. 
Hold on. I'm paying $12.55 for it right now, which is a lot of money, but it's not, but it is. <laughs> it is. But it's $12.50. So I mean, this Lillis and Salison books are never that that's little. Good. <laughs> um, yeah, that, that might be the definitely the way to go because I really doubt I'm ever going to get around to reading the entire works of Darwin. <laughs> since I have this book and since my mom read it, and just told me it really is incredible. When Darwin showed up in this book, I thought, not that Darwin is right on everything, but like, I don't know what I don't right. know. No, that's fair. That's fair. That's intellectually that's honest. True. Yeah. Well, yesterday I had to go review Lizzie because it had been a while since I read it. And it was kind of, I read sort of fast. And you don't know what to pick up on sometimes when you're reading the first time through. But maybe mm-hmm. this is, this is back clear on page 15 but turner meets willis's grandmother mrs hurd and they get along really well but he's so he's turner buckminster the third with those three roman numerals and she says so turner buckminster when you look through the number at the end of your name does it seem like you're looking through prison bars yes and I thought maybe we need to keep that in our minds as he's working through all of these things is that that's Amen. what he's trying to do is find who he is, not who mm-hmm. he should be because of who his mm-hmm. parents were. Right. Yeah. And then I loved this scene with Mrs. Cobb. So Lizzie hasn't been coming around and Mrs. Cobb says to him, Turner Buckminster, you don't have to be a minister's son all the time. You don't have to be a minister's son all the time. Turner had never thought he could ever, at any time, be anything else. The thought shivered him, as if he had almost touched a whale. I was just like, he needed someone to tell him that. And then he got the courage to go find Lizzie. Because he said, I do like her, he said. Of course you do. And it doesn't matter a damn. Yes, even old ladies cuss. It doesn't matter a damn what anyone else in the town of Pittsburgh has to say about it. It doesn't matter what anyone else in the whole state of Maine has to say about it. So she's the first person to give him permission to think outside that box. Right. Right. And I thought, whoa. This is the woman who, when Lizzie comes into her house the first time, says, there's a Negro standing in my parlor. There's nothing like that has ever happened before. <laughs> and she learns and, to love her too. And how interesting, yeah. that whole relationship is fascinating because clearly she is so prejudiced. And yet she knows who Lizzie Bright is. She knows Lizzie's backstory. And we're not even going to get the full backstory that she knows. And she feels guilt about Lizzie's backstory. I thought that was interesting. Well, this made me mad, actually, because when that scene came up and she said to Lizzie, I know who you are. You're Jonah's son. And you're, Mm -hmm. you know, in my mind, are they calling him Jonah because his name is Jonah? Are they calling him Jonah because he was a Mm -hmm. Jonah? And in my mind, I thought, we're going to find out he's white and he's from the Ah. town. Can you totally see that? And so I kept, that was my, I saw that and I thought that's what's coming. And she knows it. The town knows it. And then Gary never did anything with it. And I thought, okay, well, I think that's a really great storyline. I'm going to write him. <laughs> that should be. Especially because of the whale. Added. I just. Especially because of the whale. But also when you go and research the island of Malaga, it actually was a lot of interracial marriages. Right. So afterwards, I went and did some research and I thought, well, now my theory makes even more mm-hmm, sense. Mm-hmm. I, I think I'm even more mm-hmm. right. Because they were former <laughs> slaves and Irish people. He said the two most hated. The two most hated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I kind of wondered if there was this additional underlying town secret. And it could be. We don't know. It just never, we never find out Lizzie's full history. We don't, the dad, we know the mom and the dad are dead. We know the mom is buried on Malaga. We know what happens with the grandfather, but the dad, his story is not told, except that Mrs. Cobb says, I know who you are and I know who your father was. And his father is not buried, See? or her father is not buried next to her mother. Right. Right. So I have big questions. That's a good theory. I like that theory. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But isn't that also another reason why they want the inhabitants of Malaga to go away? Because they want to cover up that they have, in fact, been interracially marrying. 
And they do not like that. Their racism does not tolerate that. And so in their hate and in their evil, they want to make that go away so they don't have to be faced with the consequences or realities of that. Yeah, I think there's a whole lot of underlying things that actually tie into racism. Mm -hmm. So is Jonah her son? I wondered that. Because she really Mm -hmm. wants to leave the house to Lizzie. It's clear that she wants to leave the house to Lizzie, but nobody's ever going to honor that. So she has to leave it to Turner. Well, and I was so surprised with the whole scene when Turner says, I play the organ and she's, Lizzie's like, what? And he's like, you come on over and hear me. So my expectation was that Lizzie was going to sit outside the window or outside the door. Me too. And then they just bring her in and they sit her down with no introduction. And Mrs. Cobb is just, she's okay with it. There's no conversation. And then as long as she doesn't have to acknowledge it, she doesn't care. Yeah. Right. And then day after day, things go on. Lizzie starts to sing. Mm And things shift. Mm-hmm. And I just thought, well, and also, so interesting. I thought it was a secret. I thought nobody knew that she was coming in. But at, at a point, they, she says, oh, the whole town knows. knows. They've been talking to me. They've been telling me, why are you letting this girl in your house? You right. know, or whatever. And I thought, oh, so why is the town putting up with this? But I don't think they were. <laughs> Like, again, I feel like this is where it connects back to the witch trials. I feel like they were using the weapon of mentally unfit or needing to be hospitalized. They were using that as a weapon against anybody who didn't see it their way. Including Mrs. Hurd. Exactly. Including Mrs. Hurd. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what I was thinking is with Mrs. Hurd. That's what they did. I also had questions about that. The Hurds, the the son, Mm -hmm. and the... um, grandson even the willis seems like well you know i took my grandmother to the i mean he didn't he doesn't mourn he they seem awfully but then he okay for with shutters mm-hmm. yeah that's true mm-hmm. but isn't that also that also reminds me of the scene one of the opening scenes in the borrowed house where a lot of the German people allowed their family members to just be taken away to hospitals and never to be seen again. It's amazing what people will do in order to be accepted by the crowd. Like you were saying, adult peer pressure earlier, Tanya, the, the need to to fit into the group, the need to not be the outlier, the need to not get adverse attention. How much are you willing to compromise for that? I think we have to question ourselves, like, how often do we do that and not realize we're Mm -hmm. doing that? Yeah. I think that some of those people just had the feeling that it didn't really matter what they thought. They couldn't do anything about it. And But you find out toward the end, like, these people start to trickle into Turner's life who, like, the man who, he says, well, you didn't ask me yet. What do you mean? Well, you you were going to ask me if if I would take you down to get Lizzie out of the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. And he does. And he, yeah, yeah, he does. And so here he's been sitting there not saying anything, but he's also not one of the people who would have done what they did if, if he could have done anything about it. But I think he just I assumed could say, he couldn't. At the end of the book, when all these people showed up, when they finally accepted Turner's mother and all, all I wanted to say is, you hypocrites, where were you the first three quarters of this book? Yep. How much of this evil could have been averted if you all had just behaved correctly? Not mm-hmm. asking you to behave mm-hmm. radically, just have decency. Right. I hated these people. Well, and I, I think fear is a powerful mm-hmm. master. Yeah. And it's hard to... It's easy to look at that. It's easy to read these stories of World War II. But if we were actually placed in a position of massive fear, losing your life or losing the life of a loved one or losing a home or going without food or none of us, most of us have not been tried in such a way. And of course, this isn't World War II quite, Mm -hmm. but there are consequences. The town is going under. The shipping business is failing. People don't want to lose their livelihoods in their houses. And, you know, there's a question in here where I, maybe it's Turner that says, if we take their houses, what happens when they come for mm-hmm. yours? And yes. one of the men mm-hmm. says, well, that's never going to happen. Why? But it because will of the happen. Color of your it skin? does happen. That's what's protecting you? Because you feel like you're secure. And I just think fear 
can just do such powerful things. And even his father was having to decide if he goes, if he stands for what he knows in his heart. And he's having questions with Turner because at some point they say to Turner, well, these people are manipulating you into getting you on their side. And Turner asked the question, is it only one group of people that can manipulate you into thinking what they want you Mm -hmm. to think? Mm -hmm. And his dad recognizes that there's a, there's even a point where Turner looks at his dad and realizes that his dad is smaller in stature than he used to think. And Turner's dad looks at him and realizes he's bigger in stature than he used to think as Turner's growing. And then you start to see the shifting between the two of them, just with small pieces of dialogue. This is why I think it was genius is there is a shifting in that relationship as the dad starts to come into courage as he's watching his son. And what I love about Schmidt is you have these boys who are not rebellious. They are not disrespectful. Amen. Amen. They are not bad kids. They are wonderful kids, but they're not doormats. They question, they buck the system. They want to do what is right. Even if everything around them is giving them dictation, dictates that are this is wrong like when he can't go see lizzie and finally mrs Cobb basically gives him permission you go find that girl mm-hmm. the right thing to do is to go find that girl um and one of the this comes back to the personification of the sea breeze one afternoon after another dreary sunday he walked home from mrs Cobb's with the sea breeze determined to shove him to malaga mm-hmm. island it scooted around him and pulled at his ears it threw up the dust of the road into his face to turn him around And when he leaned into it, it suddenly let go and pushed at him from behind, laughing. But with the iron word forbidden, tolling like a heavy bell by his ears, Turner would not let himself be brought to Malaga. And so, with a last abrupt kick, the sea breeze twisted around and left him. Turner watched it rushing pell-mell down Parker Head and toward the shore. Go find Lizzie, he whispered. Hmm. It's like he's not trying to be defiant, but at the same time, he knows... He needs to find her. And so I love that you just have that battle, that internal battle that I think is true to adolescence of trying to figure out and do what you think is right sometimes when you're being faced with rules that you feel like are wrong. And as adults, we have to make those same decisions. Like that doesn't ever go away. Well, yeah, but the tragedy is, is Turner's dad. Right. Who spends the whole book trying to figure out what is right and trying to figure out and then it's really too late by the time he does i say he knows what's right the whole book he's trying to decide if he's courageous enough to act on what he knows i is don't right. i think i think it's like i think it's just like um i won't get real specific but there are things going on now that people are doing evil things right and yet it's hard to believe that they're doing evil things and maybe my maybe my the way i'm looking at it is wrong maybe i need to read more maybe i don't understand really and that's what turner's dad says you know well you know maybe those he doesn't say it in so many words i I don't think but maybe those people on the island really are um mentally unfit and they need to be cared for somewhere you know he he's trying trying to figure it out and i think people now and even down to me are trying to figure some of these things out yeah. but the scary thing is that by the time you fig- get it all figured out it might be too late but well and <laughs> when do he does about when it. he does though he gives his life for the truth even though he doesn't yes. go into that conflict True. knowing he's going to die, I think he's willing. Because right. there's a I gun involved. He knows the stakes are high. <laughs> yeah, he knows how high the stakes are. Yeah. yeah. And I, th- I think, I think uh, my opinion is somewhere in the middle of both of both Sherry and Tanya here, because I think he has two competing vocations here. He has the vocation of his own Christian duty that, as a man, he knows X Y Z is is true and good and beautiful. But as a pastor who is assigned to be the shepherd of a flock, he doesn't know what his flock is capable of. Like we said earlier, he's really new to this flock. He doesn't know this flock yet. And he doesn't know all the backstories and all the nuances. It is complex. And so I think he is wrestling between how do I as a man adhere to what I know is true 
while I also minister to lead, encourage, teach, and edify my, my people that I'm called to serve. And so I think he feels a competing of two equally important desires. And the crisis, as you said, Diane, comes so fast. It's, to me, pardonable that he would be confused. I don't agree with his choices leading up to this. I, I do think he's too weak, but I don't think he's weak from, from um, I, I just don't think he's quite as bad as he appears. I think he is genuinely in a crisis of his own. I would say that. I would say it. And I think Sherry makes some really good points is that he's wishy-washy. Mm. Like he's not ready to make a stand. And maybe he like Sherry is saying, he doesn't know exactly where he stands. Right. But I think he's not 100% on board with what they're doing. Otherwise, he would come out right. that way. He would have come down hard on Turner and said, no, this is wrong. And, and this is what needs to happen. Like he would have he would have come across as Mr. Stonecrop and right. he didn't. So he's in that middle place. Like you're saying that there's that conflict. He's yes. wishy-washy. He's not, he's like sitting on the right. fence. He's a yeah. fence. I think we can say that maybe he should have known better, but we're looking mm-hmm. at it from the outside and going, don't you see what's happening here? I- yeah. <laughs> but, but I read the history. The you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, and, and the fact that we mentioned earlier that um, Turner says he's never, He's never met a a black person before. Right, right. You know, that tells me that his father maybe has met black people, but has not been around them. Right. And probably has been told a lot of things that are wrong. And and they're living in a particular way. He doesn't know. Yeah. They're living in 1912. And and the people on the island are living in a particular way with a that is influenced both by poverty, but also by culture. And it is foreign and strange to the white people. So therefore, they can't really discern the difference between that which they don't understand and that which they b- believe to be mental illness. Now, I'm not saying these people innocently thought that these people I'm were genuinely excusing. mentally ill. No. no. But you can understand that if they have no experience with a culture that is foreign to them, how you could wonder, well, like, why would these people stay if they're not wanted? You can you can see how a sympathetic character who's new to the situation might actually be confused for a while. Plus, I think that probably this whole thing was not engineered by the townspeople. It was a few people at the top with the influence. And I don't even know that you could say that the whole town was complicit because how many of them actually had anything to say about it at all or even knew what was Mm -hmm. going on? Yeah, Yeah, true. I think we could also consider that this same thing still happens today. Mm -hmm. So you can be a good Christian and want to take care of the poor and want to be charitable and want to do things that raise people up and also not want a tent city in your backyard and also not want homeless people on the Mm -hmm. street. Yes, you can. And also not want things that drop your property values and also feeling like, well, if that's dropping my property values, we need to do something about it and go to the city council. Mm -hmm. This still happens. These are still challenges. Absolutely. And so, yes, those people have been living there for however long, but- in a lot of other countries, there's people that squat on land that they don't own. And like these are these are real challenges that get really complex. It's not, it's never black and white. And so I think Schmidt does try to show that when they're trying to show the economics is dying, who's going to have to provide for them? Yeah. Like they're, how is it going to work if they live there and the town is dying or if they come over here and we're trying to bring in tourism and can we bring, I mean, this happens in big cities all the time where they want to gentrify yes areas and they want to come in and they have eminent domain and they take over the land and boot everybody else so they can make it really nice. Right. This still happens. It is ha- and will continue to happen. Mm-hmm. But what is the evil of this is it's the church facilitating it. And the church should have been on the front lines to be resolving the issues of poverty and discrimination. The church had no business being involved in a scheme that attacked the dignity and safety of the people, all people, because all people are part of Christ's body. And so that's well, the... Well, they should have been looking at the actual results. Yeah. Right? If they went over there, they found out that the minister over there was wonderful yes. and that they didn't have a bunch of crime and there wasn't the craziness going on that they were claiming Correct. that they were rationalizing. Correct. 
And so again, I think it comes back to getting to know people, finding out how we can best shepherd and, and care walk for people, with people and walk with people. It's, it's complicated. All of these things are so, so complicated. complicated. But, but, but we the have... church had no business being involved in a profit scheme. That's right. the real issue. But we have to say, though, about Schmidt that he takes the most prominent man in the church who's involved in this scheme, and he's the one most hard hit and who gets his Amen. comeuppance and actually mm-hmm. turns himself around. So he does get that poetic justice in the end. Mm-hmm. And that's where the redemption and the forgiveness come in as well. I mean, Mr. Stonecrop right. just takes off and leaves everybody holding the bag. But right. Deacon Hurd, mm-hmm. he pays. He's, he's, yeah, he was somebody and now he's nobody. And I think that that's, that's a just way to end that story. Well, I think this is a great opportunity to help everybody understand what is coming next month. So next month we are going to fast forward back into the past, but in the future for these, this set of characters. And we're going to read just like that. And again, you can read these books in any order that you want. I think that you're going to, it's, it's, it's like Narnia. You can debate about whether or not you go in through the wardrobe or go in with the magician. It doesn't matter. It's however you do it is fine. Um, but we think that coming next with just like that will be very interesting and satisfying if you have read Wednesday Wars, okay for now, and this book. So next month will be just like that. And then that'll be the end of our little Gary D. Schmidt season that we're in. Diane and I are working our way through all of Gary D. Schmidt's books for children. So I'm I'm sure we're not just done discussing Gary D. Schmidt and definitely in our reading life, we'll probably talk more about him as we read more of his books and have more things to say. Um, so for next time, friends, go ahead and get just like that. Uh, this one, the audio is kind of painful. <laughs> the audio for just like that is very, very slow. I think I listened to it at 2.1 speed. Um, so if you do get the audio, feel free to speed it up. Then it sounds a lot better. Tanya and Sherry, thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us. It's been really fun. I think it's so much fun that Sherry was always a Gary D. Schmidt fan. And so as we have become newly initiated into the Gary D. Schmidt fan club, she's been here all along just waiting for people to show up. Yeah. (laughs) And I love that Tanya knew nothing about Gary D. Schmidt and that we roped her into it and she is loving him as well. I think it would be good to let our listeners know that next month is just like that, as we've already said. But following that, we are going to be doing uh, some Westward themed books. So we'll be doing Letters from a Woman Homesteader. And then after that, not exactly West, but also lighting out for an adventure, Parnassus on Wheels, which (laughs) is hilarious. (laughs) It's really a quick afternoon read, friends. So you can, that one is a good one to do during the holidays when you're short on time and just need a good laugh. So friends, it's a real joy having you here. And we uh, would really appreciate it if you would share this podcast with others who you think might enjoy it. We'd love to see you in the BiblioGuides online community, which is a mighty network and totally free. And if you feel up to it and you want other people to learn about our podcast, go ahead and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. Uh, it's our understanding that if you leave comments in any of the podcasting apps that accept them, that that actually helps the metrics and helps the podcasting apps know to recommend us to other listeners like you. Until next time, friends. Bye.